And well, there was a big, almost celebration, you could say. There was certainly a celebratory tone to this. The new government, well, not new government, the uh, BC government uh, is saying that the last MSP premiums, the checks are in the mail. Starting January 1st, this province will be MSP free. But what does that actually mean? Because when we look at the bigger picture, the costs of health care are still there. They still need to be paid. So what does it mean for taxpayers? Well, why not check in with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. BC Director Chris Sims is with us on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning. What is your take on the fact that uh, we're celebrating this? It was a, a campaign promise that they have followed through on and we are now a province without MSP. Well, we don't like to rain on parades and it's always a good thing when a political promise and a pledge during an election is kept. So it is a good thing the medical services premium will finally be gone as of January 2020, so in just a few weeks' time. That's a good thing. So for a lot of British Columbians, we're no longer getting, you know, that nasty little envelope in the mail reminding us to pay, or if you have an electronic payment system, you're no longer getting that. So that's a good thing. The bad part about this is that it came with a big hook. This was really just a bait and switch. So what they did is they campaigned on getting rid of the medical services premium, the MSP, but they didn't tell us what they were going to do instead. And instead, they created the employer health tax, the EHT. And for every job creator outside of a not-for-profit with a payroll of more than $500,000, so around 70000 employers or so here in British Columbia, they have a brand new payroll tax. And they started paying this payroll tax this year while the MSP was still lingering around. So for a lot of businesses, they were getting a double whammy on healthcare taxes. And the difference that the government raked in actually helped them balance their provincial budget. So it's really not a good thing. And if you take a look at the employer health tax, because it goes after every employer at the payroll of more than 500000 and municipalities, it really has this tentacled reach into taxpayers' wallets. And many of us may not realize it. Because cities and towns get their money from property taxpayers and ratepayers of different sorts, guess who's paying those new employer health tax rates? We still are. We're just paying it in a different form. It's not as obvious, but we're still paying it. And isn't that the case, though, even with MSP gone? And like you said, so even for companies, because I think one of the arguments was, oh, but it's not all businesses. Like you said, it's only businesses with a payroll of $500,000 or more. But the cost of the health care is still there. So that money is still needed. So hasn't it shifted for other businesses, even if they are no longer paying the MSP or if employees are no longer paying it? You were still paying that money. That money still has to come from somewhere. Yes. <laughs> Whenever you take that amount of money out of what I would call the economic ecosystem, it still leaves. It's not like they've magically found a new source of funding or been able to really uh, synthesize and streamline their spending so that they spend our money smarter or, you know, done something really smart like, say, stopping uh, throttling things like the Trans Mountain Pipeline and support our resource development because guess what? You get a heck of a lot of taxpayer money uh, coming into your coffers if you start supporting resource development, which guess what? You can then in turn spend on things like health care or on tax reduction or anything like that. So you're right. The money still has to come out and it's still coming out. 
it's just coming out in different little forms that some people may not realize. And when you talk about a business, and I find for some folks who who think that this employer health tax is a great thing, they just imagine a business as some sort of big, you know, uh, faceless sprawl mart in their mind. They they can't quite picture it. That's a business to them. Well, a business is that building down the street that could very well be selling you baked goods. Or a business, for example, is like the one up in Prince George that I talk to frequently. They're a major auto parts and trucking parts supplier in Prince George. They've been in business for 40 years. They're one of the backbones of that community. And they're paying an extra about 60 grand per year because of this new health tax. That's a, that's a journeyman's tr- uh, starting wage. You know, that's a lot of money. Or say if you've got like a plumbing outfit and you've got a bunch of different tradespeople and you all of a sudden have a new sixty or $70,000 per year bill, that means you're not hiring that new guy or gal to come on to your payroll. Or you're, in some cases, withholding wage increases, even if your employees have been awesome and they deserve it because the government's taking it. But average people don't see it happening. And it's also a bit, uh, even in that in that vein also, I would imagine if you are right on the brink, if you are yep. close to being a $500,000 payroll business, there's not the incentive to expand or to go above that because as soon as you do, you get dinged. Yes, exactly. You roll over that $500,000 threshold, that payroll threshold, and then you start in on the notched rate, that's like a strange term in their budget, a notched rate of the new employer health tax and then it gets up to a certain amount. The other problem with the employer health tax, and there's many of them, is that threshold that you just highlighted. It's very, very low. It's much higher in places like Manitoba. I think it's about 1.25 million is where you start paying it in Manitoba. Here, especially in British Columbia, you can get over $500,000 in your payroll much more easily than some folks realize. And so you mentioned Manitoba because that's one of the other arguments too, and is that BC was one of the last provinces to have this. Uh, one of the one of the criticisms of it was once you made as a, a worker, once you made thirty grand, you were paying the same MSP that somebody that made two million was, yeah. and people said that was unfair. What would be a more fair way of collecting the money? We think that they should get rid of it first, and then really do a lot of homework and come up with a different way of funding this and coming up with a way of paying for their health care. Because what really dings us is that when they were announcing all of this, when they said they wanted to get rid of the MSP during the election campaign, they didn't say that they were going to create the employer health tax. Now, if they had, and they had been really upfront about it, and shown us the math, and people still voted for them, and they still won government, well, my argument would be a heck of a lot harder. But unfortunately, they didn't. They just said, we're going to get rid of the MSP, which the CTF and other organizations praised them for. They said, yes, it's costly to administrate. It isn't efficient. Uh, We think it's an unfair form of taxation. Please get rid of it. And they then won, and then they invented the employer health tax. So we'd like them to get rid of both. That would be a great way to start off the new year and then take a long, hard look at how they can properly pay for it. And again, we need to to remember that government, in most people's opinion, 
isn't a lean, mean, efficient machine. It's not as if it's it's perfectly paying for you know just your grandma's health care and just your your precious child's education. There's a lot of wasteful spending that happens in government, and there's poor decisions that happen in government. As we pointed out just a few months ago, because of the way that various levels of government strangle things like pipelines, right, to get our oil and gas out to market, because we're not at capacity for those pipelines in Canada, we've lost out on about $13 billion over 10 years. That's just federal tax dollars. That's not even looking at how much the provincial royalties would be or anything like that. So that's a serious amount of money. And so if we stop, say, fighting our natural resources and make sure that they're properly developed and safe for everybody, we'll, we'll reap the benefit. We'll have more money to either spend or save at the government level. But right now, turning around and nailing almost every single employer in B.C. and municipality, so that means that you're a property taxpayer, you're going to get nuked too, that's not going to be the answer. You're going to see a lot of people really struggling with this. All right. Well, that could lead us to a whole other conversation, but we'll have to yes. save that for another day. Chris Sims, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, you might have seen these stories in the Globe and Mail. They have done a couple of stories, uh, quite jarring, especially if you have a loved one, perhaps in a care home, or you're thinking about that down the road. It has to do with some senior care facilities in BC that are owned by a company in China, foreign owned. And the fact that the government has taken the uncommon step of of intervening because of some concerns that were raised about the treatment of seniors in these care homes. Well, joining me to talk a bit more about this is Daniel Fontaine, who is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. And Dan joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Uh, what is your response when you first heard uh, this story? And again, the Globe and Mail has been covering this, uh, talking about this intervention by government uh, in uh, the running of these care homes. Yeah, well, well, first and foremost, uh, you know, we obviously want to make sure that uh, seniors are providing the top level care that they can throughout the province. It's one of the reasons why our industry association, you know, established a quality committee. It's why we've been working to establish a new quality of life framework uh, for the province of BC. And it's a reason why we've made a commitment to that. So whenever I hear of any issue uh, like this, of course, uh, I'm concerned. But I also know that there's always a lot more detail that doesn't necessarily get out into the public domain and it can be a little bit more complex than sometimes the public are aware of. And so when I was watching that and, and monitoring that um, uh, from from our office, just to try to make sure that we're on top of this uh, issue, um, we know that there it is complex. And so we know that um, the, the company itself, and I'd like to clarify this as well, because I think this is important. I've, I've heard this reference many times that, Anbang Insurance is actually running the care homes there. They've actually, Jill, purchased the land and the buildings. And they've done that for the entire portfolio for retirement concepts. So they own that. The actual operating arm, the staff who were there before the purchase, the directors of care, the care aides, the nurses, all those people are the same. Nothing has changed uh, the day before or the day after that purchase. This was a land and a building transaction. 
So what we're talking about is actually um, the same folks who were there prior than post. And that's important for the public to understand that as well. Oh, absolutely. Because the allegations, uh, from what I understand, is that uh, neglect of residents, but it doesn't really go into the details, and understaffing, so a staffing shortage. Is that your understanding as well of of what is uh, alleged to be happening there? Yeah, and the staffing shortage is really important to highlight because I think what's important, and again, this is very complex, but I know I've been on your show talking about this for, I think, the better part of three years, that we've been facing a health human resources crisis uh, in this province for many, many years. In fact, we took the unprecedented move uh, back in the spring of declaring a health human resources crisis in the interior of this province. There simply are not enough um, staff. And in fact, not only are there enough staff, there's big issues with affordable housing in, in places like the interior. In fact, this particular operator, um, Retirement Concepts, uh, the staffing shortage is so bad in the interior that they're now actually physically housing about 30 of their staff. They simply cannot find housing for staff in places like Summerland. So they're actually physically housing them within the care setting until they can find something um, affordable to live within the actual region. So we know there was a declaration um, first in the interior of the health human resources crisis. That was actually extended this fall uh, onto Vancouver Island because we were monitoring how many of the care homes um, on the island were actually struggling with being able to find enough uh, care aides and and nursing staff. And when you don't have enough staff, um, you know, that's going to manifest itself on the floor. And that's why we've been saying we need to have a province-wide strategy. We need to make sure that we're training enough care aides, that we're actually training them, keeping them in BC and retaining them on the floor. In fact, we should also be looking at recruiting uh, carried some across um, the world if we can to British Columbia and that's a whole other discussion on another show of all the impediments that are there uh, for those individuals but we need to be working together not working apart so I think that's that's absolutely critical. So in in the stories uh, in the Globe as well and, and they go through the steps or they, they uh, spell it out saying that like, much like you said that it's not as though Angbang Insurance that the Beijing based company came in and started running it and brought in all its own mm-hmm. staff and changed things. So these are homes that are run by a company called Retirement Concepts. Uh, they weren't mm-hmm. quoted in the article. So is it is it misguided then to be blaming this on foreign ownership? Oh, I, I don't. I'm actually perplexed as to why the issue of the foreign ownership comes up on these types of stories. I mean, it's it's one thing if someone wants to be criticized for, for the care that they're providing. That's fair enough, and there's a process to deal with that, and that process is working itself and manifesting itself, as we see. But there is this uh, this issue around the Chinese ownership of the land and and the buildings. It's akin. Uh, Jill, you you probably heard that Anbang also purchased the Bentall Towers downtown. They purchased the land and the building that the Bentall Towers are in. What I've been hearing is akin to people talking about every single company that's operating within the Bentall Towers being controlled by Beijing. It's ridiculous. It's actually it's, it's quite silly when you think of it, when you talk about it that way. So I, I, I hope that people will focus on the health human resources issue. And, and look, for example, of what happened in Nanaimo. We know that, um, that there were critical issues in the, in the Nanaimo site. Now, we know that, that the health authority, and I, I'm not necessarily blaming them, but the health authority came in, did a job fair, uh, literally in the shadow of that care home, um, and offered work to uh, every single one of the care aides that were working within the, the care home. A number of them left, went over to the health authority, and then, and then the situation in that particular site, as I'm told, got even worse because we were struggling with, with health human resources. 
we can't be doing this poaching staff from one site to the other. We need to be training more care aides. That's what I've been saying for, for three years, and I'll be continuing to say it until we finally come up with a provincial strategy to make sure that there's enough staff there so when seniors require the care either at home, in a single-family home, and they need a home care worker, or someone in a long-term care site, there are enough people there to hire, and we're not at that position yet. So have you seen this happen before then? Because, Or it seems like it's, it's a continuation, perhaps, of the, the ongoing battle between uh, private and public, in that the government wanting to take over and make this mm-hmm. all part of the public system rather than have private ownership and private system, uh, private homes. Yeah, there there is a whole philosophical discussion around this. Is that there are there are those who believe that there should be no private care um, operators in long term care in the province, and they've been talking about this ever for fifty years since we've had private long term care in the province of British Columbia. So that I don't doubt is 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 mixed in this. We know that. Um, the hospital employees union wrote a letter to the minister and and advised the minister that uh, one of the top three things that the minister should do is take over the operations of retirement concepts. We know we obtained that through freedom of information, so we know that that is happening. We know that right now they're in the midst of collective agreements, and we know what happened when when people are not at the table, they're not negotiating. You know, the the employer, as I understand it, would would like to be able to, to, uh, you know, increase the wages of those carriers to ensure that they're more competitive. But they've been without a contract in Nanaimo, as I understand it, for over two years. I mean, you need to sit down at the table, negotiate a collective agreement, uh, make sure that those wages are competitive. And that's how you're going to be able to retain the staff so that if there is a job fair, in Nanaimo, that a number of staff aren't leaving because someone else is coming in and offering more wages. All those things are are happening right now, and it's hard to put that in the context of a news story, but but it's important for the public to understand that. Well, because really, at the end of it, who owns the land and who owns the building, I think, is the least of the worries of people that are in the homes Mm -hmm. or that have loved ones in these homes. No, it's the operator that has the contract with the health authority. And so Retirement Concepts as the operating arm. They're the ones that employ the carriers, the directors of care. That is, the, uh, to me, the issue. And, and, and being able to attract enough staff, be ensuring that their, their collective agreements are competitive so that when they've negotiated them, they can attract new staff. Those are valid issues. Those are things that people can, should be, should be in, and, and I assume will be talking about in the coming days. But what's happening is, it's being overshadowed by the by the organization or the, the the company that's purchased the land and the buildings, and I think that that's unfortunate, and it's clouding the issue. And I think it, it will not allow us to get to the real heart of this and make sure that uh, that the people who are concerned and the people who are receiving the care and the people who are providing it uh, in those particular sites uh, are doing a hundred percent top notch job. And that's that's our concern, and that's where we want to go with this, and that's where we're willing to work with the operator and with the health authority, and with the ministry to make sure that we can get a resolution to this as soon as possible. All right. We will leave it there, but I'm sure we'll talk about this again. Daniel Fontaine, thank you so much for your time this morning. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Joe. Well, last weekend on the program, we were talking a little bit about the Research Co. poll that took a look at cell phones in classrooms and found a A lot of people in B.C. were on board with the idea of banning phones in the K-12 classrooms. Well, I'm joined now by Patty Backus, who's a former Vancouver School Board Chair, and she's also an education columnist in the Georgia Strait. And uh, Patty, thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. 
Oh, thanks for having me on your show, Jill. Uh, you've written about this and very much on the other side mm-hmm. of the idea of banning cell phones. Uh, maybe walk us through a bit. What are your concerns or your take on the idea of or the issues with banning cell phones? Well, anytime I hear the word ban in relation to schools, I kind of think back to all the various bans over the decades that uh, it, it's very easy to bring in bans for, as I say, groups who are far less powerful for you. And it seems like forever adults have been clamoring to ban things in schools, whether it's various books or clothing or toys or whatever. Uh, so, you know, as soon as I see like over 80% of people want to think a ban of, of something that we all use every day uh, in classrooms is, is a good idea. I kind of wince and say that's a very blunt instrument to apply to a pretty complex contemporary challenge. And, you know, there's no question that that phones create a problem in classrooms and are a challenge for teachers to monitor how kids are using them. They can, of course, be a big distraction. We know that. We know that they can contribute to anxiety if there's bullying issues going on and other, other things happening. So, you know, I understand the need to control how students use uh, phones and to teach them, and, and I think that's the key word is the education component, appropriate use. Um, so I, you know, argue that it's a really a 1960s solution to a 2020 problem, and that we must be much more, I think, nuanced and intelligent about how we uh, approach this topic. Phones are really useful tools. I use mine for all kinds of things, and, and I've actually been in situations where they say we're you know, all going to put our phones away for four hours in this meeting. And it actually kind of makes me anxious because I'm, I use it to check the time. I use it to go back and check, you know, minutes from the previous meeting or other information that I need and to, of course, keep in touch with family and uh, loved ones in the case of emergency. So I find it actually distraction, distracting not to have my phone. But there's a lot of really good uses for phones in classrooms. And I think, you know... They're actually, for the most part, what I've been seeing in schools is that the, it, there's good policies. Most teachers have you know, policy for how phones can be used in their classrooms. Many incorporate them into learning or students can use them at appropriate times. I used the example in my column of a teacher who tweeted about seeing a student in class with his phone out and went over to talk to him and realized the student was using his phone to take a photo of the information on the whiteboard that he had difficulty seeing and then he would blow it up on his phone and he was keeping all of that information organized in a file. So it was an accessibility tool for that student uh, who was able to make it easy for himself to to complete the assignments and have that information. So it was a really constructive use of a phone. So, you know, I believe phones and technology are a ubiquitous, ubiquitous part of our lives. They're going to be part of students' lives when they leave school. We need to be teaching them to harness that technology, use it constructively, and know when to put it away and when to bring it out. And an all-out ban is just, to me, a really sort of ignorant solution uh, to something that's far more complex. And I'm with you on the the kind of anxiety without having the phone. And when I see stories sometimes of concerts where people have to put their phones in these sealed bags, I would I just wouldn't go. I probably I would not go to that concert. Uh, is there an issue? I, I mean, it's such a broad stroke when we're talking K to twelve. Is there ever an issue? Do you think where say in grade two, uh, some students might have a phone, others wouldn't? I mean, is it more? Could we break it for elementary school and high school? 
Oh, I think it has to be age appropriate, and I think those kind of policies should be developed locally. Um, and I argue in many cases, I think students should be part of that process. I'm not sure about grade two, um, but including students in a discussion, especially in high school, about how we're going to manage our phones. I think in elementary schools, it's critical even to have very clear policies about how they're used during breaks, recess, and lunch. There are privacy issues, and I'm not sure that you know, there's a, a lot of use for those those. Uh, phones to be out for a for a seven year old for sure, but I think we have to be thoughtful about that and and do that at the local level. And, and I don't, you know, when I see the Premier of Ontario talking about a phone ban, we don't need the Premier to decide what happens in an elementary school when it comes to phones. Elementary schools and their principals and staff and parents and some to some extent students are quite capable of coming up with appropriate codes of conduct for that school and policies that will work and respect what actually happens there. There may be times on a pouring rainy day that kids want to sit in the hallway and play some games on a phone. I don't know. You know, I wouldn't want to... This is why when I see these sort of provincial level, let's all ban phones in schools, it it just seems like a very blunt approach to something that requires a much more thoughtful approach and to to have some confidence and trust in the people who uh, work in our schools to come up with better solutions than just a flat out ban. And you raised this in the column as well, and I'll fully admit I've not set foot in a classroom in many, many years. You have. I mean, is it mm-hmm. chaos? Are, are students, no. I mean, as soon as the teachers are turning their backs, are students on their phones and, and consumed with hap- what's, what's on the phone rather than what they should be doing? Um, you know, when there's a chaotic classroom, it's general because there's a lack of support and kids who have needs that aren't being met and understaffing. It's not because of cell phones. And, um, you know, certainly they're a challenge. I mean, I, I, lots of teachers I've talked to said, oh, it drives me nuts. But just as, you know, other inappropriate behaviors, and as I said in my column in my day, it was passing notes or other distractions. I mean, there's always going to be that challenge of, uh, you know, managing classroom behavior. But a lot of teachers I talked to say phones are no different from any other behavior challenge that you have to to manage and most classrooms when you when I've been in I don't see a bunch of phones out and I don't see kids on Snapchat I mean there may be a bit of that that happens but if it's done it's done very discreetly Um, but I don't see it being the big distraction that I think a lot of people who responded to the research co-poll may have thought. Right so as it stands now if you're a teacher could you ban phones in your classroom? Absolutely. Teachers, uh, you know, have the autonomy to set the expectations for behavior for their classroom. And if there's no practical reason kids could be using phones in their classes, if they want to do that, they can. And then they have the, the, the task of policing that. Um, I would say it's probably not wise in a lot of cases. It could certainly be in a grade two class or something where there's lots of activity and things to be working on. But, you know, for older students, um, if there's some breaks or they finish their work or they want to look something up, I think, if you know, I like to see teachers who think about how can this be useful, you know. And, and again, I, for years I've seen kids, you know, when there's uh, homework, for example, listed on the on the whiteboard or blackboard or whatever they're using these days in their classrooms, uh, they'll take a photo of that instead of laboriously copying it down into an agenda. And they have it on their phones and they may have it in their notes, which actually shows up on their laptop if they, you know, so they're, they're 
using it in a way that I think as adults we're learning to use in our lives as well. These are very useful tools, and let's use them uh, to make ourselves more productive. So I think we're really missing something if we just say, well, let's ban these things because they're a distraction and forget all the benefits that they have. I would like kids to learn at school that these are powerful tools they can use to their advantage, and if they learn to use them appropriately and manage that distraction factor. It's lessons that we all need to learn. (laughs) All right. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, Interesting column for sure. Patty, thanks so much for joining us to talk about it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, it's pretty gray out there this morning, overcast, rainy. That is not the best conditions as far as weather when it comes to watching meteor showers. But hopefully things will improve because a pretty spectacular one is about to be seen in the skies. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about what is going to be happening is Howard Trochier, professor in the Department of Physics at SFU, also the outgoing director of the SFU Trochier Observatory. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. What uh, can we expect with it? Is it is it pronounced the Geminids? The uh, different pronunciations are out there. The Geminids. I'm not the best person for asking <laughs> how to pronounce uh, things, but yeah. All right. So we're we're talking about the same things, though the the meteor showers. So when yeah. and where is this going to be happening? Okay, so you can see it from just about anywhere. Uh, as long as the skies are clear, uh, they'll peak uh, on the night of the 13th, heading into the morning of the 14th. So next Friday into Saturday morning. Although. Uh, This time, uh, the moon will be just a few days past full, and so its light is going to block out most of the meteors. It's not the best conditions for for, for seeing them, even if it is clear. Hmm. So I guess, Bess, you're going to be fighting the light, so best to find a place outside the city, a dark place? In general, that's right. Within the city, even under good conditions, you wouldn't see all that many. You'd see some, maybe uh, 10 10 an hour or so, uh, under the best conditions from within the city or suburbs. Uh, but from deep, dark skies, 60 to 100 an hour is not unusual. Hmm. And these, I've heard these described as some of the best meteor showers. What makes them that? Okay, so there are two uh, that uh, most people pay a lot of attention to during the year. Uh, the Geminis are one and the Perseids, which are mid-August, are the other. And so it's just because so many uh, meteors, it's a denser meteor stream, basically. And so we see more of them uh, each hour during, during the peak of the meteor shower, those two in particular Although the, the Perseids tend to be more popular because it's in summertime, so it's uh, easer to stand around outside and look. <laughs> that, that is true. It's a bit warmer, nicer, although you have to warmer, wait longer yeah. for it to get dark. Um, yeah, that's true. What's the history of the Geminides? Well, so they're kind of a bit interesting. Uh, almost all meteor showers are associated with a particular comet. Uh, the Geminides are unique because they come from uh, an asteroid rather than a comet, a particular kind of an asteroid that, that tends to shed material when it gets close to the sun. And so they're, they're known as rock uh, comets. And so there, there are very relatively few of those. And the Geminides, as I said, are the only meteor shower that, that, that is associated with one. Hmm. And I've heard them described also as kind of fireballs. And so that even with the moon being full or with the light of the moon, you can still see them. That's a really good point. So if you're lucky, so most of the, these are particles are, are so like uh, grains of rock or dust. Um, but occasionally you'll get a boulder-sized thing that can blow up in the upper atmosphere, and that's rare, but if it happens, and I've seen a few of those, it can be really spectacular, and that you definitely see from, from within the city. Hmm. Um, and, and is there a particular place, and you might have mentioned this, but a particular place or direction that you should be looking to, to make sure you see them? Right, so they'll tend to come from, uh, from uh, the east, where the Gemini will, will rise, uh, sort of starting around 9 o'clock or so at night. 
Um, so in general, you want to have your back uh, uh, to the east and, and look out on as much of the sky as you possibly uh, can. Widest open sky will give you a better chance. And if you know you really want to do it, you lie down on a on a on a on a ground or on a on a recliner and uh, sit in and look up and make yourself comfortable. <laughs> and now, when you watch things like this, do you watch them with your with just with your eyes, or do you watch them through a telescope? Right. This is with your eyes. And so the chance that a meteor would pass through telescopes see only a small chunk of the sky. And so the chance that one of these things would fly through the field of view of a, of a telescope is small. Even binoculars uh, would be better, but still it's too narrow a, a view of the sky. You want as much of the sky as you can possibly see at any time. Hmm. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. It's, so if, if you have that narrow view, I mean, it would be great if it did, but I guess no guarantee. That's right. It's relatively unlikely. So even, you know, we'll be at the observatory uh, next Friday and we'll be open, but outside on the plaza, uh, that's the place to be for a meteor shower. And it has to be clear, like you said. It's not as though, I mean, we can deal with the light of the moon, but other than that, you do need a clear sky to... You do, you do. And and the moon will have an impact. And so it's still worth going out to look, but uh, you lower your expectations, uh, especially if you're in the city and because of the moonlight. And if you miss them this year, how often do these uh, Geminides light up the sky? They're kind of like clockwork. They're every year around this time of the year, second, you know, second week, uh, 12th, 13th of December. Uh, and so, as I said, there are about a dozen of these, and, and they generally tend to peak on the same date uh, within a day or two. All right. And you mentioned, too, um, the um, the observatory at SFU will be open. Uh, we tend to focus a lot, I think, on, on the observatory uh, right in Vancouver or um, yeah. the, the one that we have uh, in Vancouver. Uh, but SFU has one as well. So that sounds like that's a great place to go also. So we're open every clear uh, Friday night, uh, and uh, which is you know, not as often as we would like. Uh, but uh, if it's clear, we're open, uh, typically an hour or two after sunset. And so uh, next Friday, we'll be open from, from 7 till, till 10. And uh, we call, call these kind of star parties. So lots of people will show up. Uh, there's the observatory, but there are also uh, telescopes that are set up on the plaza by uh, local amateur astronomers from the local astronomy club. And so you can wander around the plaza and talk to all kinds of different people. And so it's, it's really kind of a fun, fun occasion. Um, and and we, as I said, we do this every, every clear Friday. All right. How many people generally show up? So it depends. You know, if we haven't had one for a while because the weather has been terrible, then we can end up with 250, 300 more. You know, it's, it, it kind of varies. 150 is sort of a more typical number when we're running uh, more regularly. And but we have. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, so I was say if it's a clear, uh, clear night next Friday, I would imagine you would expect you're expecting a bigger crowd. We are, so we'll have more people on on hand to to host. Um, uh, so yeah, we'll be ready. <laughs> All right, and where exactly is it? Okay, so you go up to the Burnaby campus. Uh, it's pretty easy to find from there. Uh, you uh, if you park in one of the visitor parking lots, you can sort of ask around and find your way. It's right in the middle of campus. Um, if you know SFU. The academic quadrangle is like the centerpiece of the campus architecture, right in the middle of the campus, and we're right next to that. We have a really fantastic location. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are looking forward to it, and fingers crossed that it's a clear sky uh, next Friday night. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for joining us and bringing us up to speed on this. For sure. Thanks for having me again.